Well, like I've said several times already tonight, we're going to go through the first part of John 15, going through verses 1 to 17, which is known as the vine and the branches. Jesus, who is the vine. So remember where we've come from. He's just been speaking about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit's going to come. That he tells his disciples they should rejoice because he's going back to the Father. They are grieved. He says, you should rejoice for me because I go to my Father who is greater than I. And he says, Satan is coming to do his work and he thinks he will defeat me. But I am not defeated. In fact, I lay down my own life. Why? To show the world that I love my Father. And I do everything that He commands me to do. That's where we left off last week. So as we pick up here in John 15, Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser, is the farmer. He's the tender, the one who's taking care of that vine. And this is an image that's ripe with Old Testament allusion. He's referring to a lot of Old Testament passages. Actually, there's many that mention this vine that Jesus brings up. The one that's probably the best to look at is Isaiah 5. That's the one I'll read to you. Another important one for what we're going to talk about that talks about the burning of the vine is Ezekiel 15. But the main background I'll give you tonight is Isaiah 5. But this vine imagery shows up in Hosea. It shows up throughout the prophets again and again to talk about a specific point. And it always refers to one thing, the same thing. I'm going to read you the parable that's from Isaiah 5 and you'll understand. It says this in Isaiah 5, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. This is Isaiah the prophet speaking of God and God's vineyard. My well-beloved, that's God, had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stone, and he planted it with the choicest vine, this beautiful vine. And he built a tower in the middle of the vineyard, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I, that I have not done for it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it, 
For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Every time the vine is mentioned in the Old Testament, it refers to the nation of Israel. That is the vine. And without fail, in the Old Testament, the vine is condemned because it bears no fruit. So, as we think about John 15, what is Jesus saying? I am the true vine. And my Father is the vine dresser. What's Jesus saying? The vine of Israel is not the true vine, but Jesus himself is the true vine. Just as Jesus in the book of John has replaced the temple, he is the new temple. Just as he's replaced the purity rituals, you know, water to wine, the spirit, the cleansing spirit that is coming, Jesus has replaced all these things throughout the Gospel of John. And what's he saying here? I'm the new covenant people. Israel is no longer the covenant people by virtue of the fact that they have this ethnic and connection with God through their ethnic reality. Jesus is saying, nope, it's me. I'm the new Israel, for I am the true vine. Jesus is true Israel. Jesus is replacing Israel. And those that are true Jews will find their way to him. That's what Jesus is saying. Listen to this. That was verse 1. Here's verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, being the Father, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Jesus says, My Father who is the farmer, who is the vine tender, any branch that is in me, any branch that's connected to the vine, which is Jesus, he prunes, he, he tends to it. And here's the thing, everyone comes under the knife but we don't come under it necessarily in the same way. Some are cut off. But even those that bear fruit are pruned so that they might bear more fruit. See, it's a similar action, isn't it? It's a similar action for the ones that are cut off and the ones that are pruned, and it's painful, but it produces good fruit. It makes you think of Hebrews, doesn't it? Hebrews, where in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says this, that the father treats those he loves like children and he disciplines them. No discipline is easy. No discipline is fun at the time, but it produces a harvest of righteousness in the person. That's the same message, isn't it? 
God prunes us if we are good branches so that we might bear more fruit. And all the branches that do not bear fruit, he cuts away. Now that's important because what Jesus is doing is warning his disciples. We don't like warning passages. We like happy, nice, encouraging passages. Warning passages are not our favorite thing to talk about. But when the scriptures talk about warning passages, we need to treat them as warning passages and be warned by them. That's their goal, is to warn us. We must take stock of our own hearts and be warned by it. So every branch that bears no fruit is cut away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. There's a, a play on words in the Greek. The actual Greek word for prunes that John uses here is the word cleans. You know, like you might clean up a plant, right? You might say that. Oh, I'm gardening. I'm just cleaning some things up. Right? It's a pretty rare word when it comes to agriculture, but John uses it in the context, and it very clearly means prunes. That's why most translations in English translate it prunes. But when you understand it's cleans, it makes sense of what he says in the next line. Every branch that bears fruit, he cleans it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean. It's the same word. Jesus is making a play on words, just as the Lord cleans every branch. Guess what? You, you have already been cleaned. Why? Because I spoke this word to you. Jesus living life with them, Jesus speaking the words of his teaching, has already pruned these disciples so that they might bear more fruit. Verse 4, Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus' point is to say what? That the only way to bear fruit is to be connected to him. When it says do nothing, it doesn't mean like the person can't live their life, they can't make choices, they can't go out and, and do things. His point is about bearing fruit. It is impossible to bear the fruit that God has intended for you to bear without being connected to Christ. You can go out and make some awful decisions. You can do that apart from Christ. That's pretty normal for people to do. Jesus is not saying that we've lost some kind of autonomy unless we're connected to him. He's saying you can't bear fruit without your connection to me. Apart from me, the vine, the branches have no ability to produce anything of value. That's what Jesus is saying. So remember that. We must abide in him. We must dwell in him. And he dwells in us. We are connected. That's why the imagery is powerful, isn't it? Because like the vine and the branches, the vine is growing the fruit 
through the branches. The branches aren't doing the work. The vine does the work. The vine is giving life to the branches. It's absorbing the nutrients. It's doing the work, and it gives life to the branches so that they might bear fruit. They work in unison. They work together. But the vine is what supports the branches, not the other way around. We must abide in Christ so that we can get that life-giving nutrient, that life-giving vitality from Jesus. Verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. They are burned. Here's the warning. Remember what Jesus is talking about in this passage. What is he talking about? He's talking about people who are branches. Who is he speaking to? His disciples. So whatever you believe about the security of salvation, whatever you might believe about that, be warned by this passage. Because he says to his disciples about branches, which by nature he has said are connected to him, that they will be cut off if they bear no fruit. However you reason that in your own theology, he says the branches that bear no fruit, people who are attached to him, will be cut off if they do not bear fruit. This is not about the world. This is not about people who are unconnected to the vine in the first place. It's clearly about people connected to the vine. If they don't bear fruit, they will be cut off. And they're worthless. They're only, all that's left to do with them is, is throw them into the fire. What's that referring to? Well, of course, it's referring to hell, isn't it? Those of us who are disciples but do not persevere in our discipleship, all that's left is to be thrown out and burned up. That's a harsh word. And I think we need to hear it as a harsh word. We must not be the kind of people that bear no fruit. It should be important to us to bear fruit. And when God prunes us, we should rejoice at the fact that we can bear more fruit. Verse 7, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done. It will be done for you. Jesus is saying, that abiding relationship will lead you to ask the kind of things that fruit bearers ask. Right? If you're bearing no fruit, you're not going to ask things 
that will be done for you, are you? No, because you're not in line with the vine. It's those who are fruit bearers, who are aligned with, with Christ, with the vine, who ask what they wish and it's done for them. Verse 8, listen to this. My Father is glorified by this. He's glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove yourself to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Jesus says that the Father is glorified both by the fact that we are bearing much fruit and that it proves that we're his disciples. Bearing fruit shows that we are his disciples. God is glorified by us showing our discipleship. And what a claim. What an awe-striking claim for Jesus to say, the same way the Father loves him, that's the way he's loved us. We have been loved by Jesus the way the Father loves Jesus. That should be wonder-inducing, shouldn't it? The way the Father loves the Son is the way the Son has loved us. We need to remain in that love. How do we do that? How do we remain in Christ's love? Well, Jesus is going to say, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that your joy may be so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Jesus again, again in the Gospel of John, as he has so many times in these last three chapters, is gonna tie love and obedience. He almost equates them, doesn't he? Love and obedience. That to love him is to obey, and to obey is to show your love. Love is the foundation and grounding for our, our obedience, and our obedience actually shows that we love. It's the evidence of it. It's important. That's important, because that's the fruit bearing he's talking about, isn't it? It's the deep things. It's the character shaping. It's the love we offer to each other. That is the, the fruit bearing that Jesus is referring to. How do I know that? What's he say in the next verse? Verse 12. This is my commandment. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you. Just like he said in John 13, he comes all the way back here in John 15 to say it again. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. And this is my commandment, that you love one another. 
He's talking to the disciples about how they love one another as the church. This is not about the world. This is not about our love for enemies. This is not about our love for non-believers. This is explicitly about our love for the church. Our love for each other as Christians. His commandment. Now that doesn't negate all those other things. They're all said. We are supposed to love our enemies. We are supposed to love those who don't believe. We are called to witness them. All of those things are true. But John is saying, of all the things that embody the commandment of Jesus, the basis, the most basic foundational one is this, that you love one another as Christians. You love one another as Christians. That is the foundation of his commandment, the new commandment he gives in this new covenant, that we love one another. We're called to love everyone, and especially the believers, right? That's the way to think of that. We're called to love everyone, but especially the believers. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Jesus says, there is no love that's greater than what I'm about to do when I lay down my life for my friends. And what has he just said? He just said, you are to love one another just as I have loved you. What's that saying? We're called to lay down our lives for each other. In some forms, that is literal, isn't it? Some forms, there are times where we lay down our lives for one another. We, we lose our life for another person, and particularly for another believer. But ultimately, it's about that cross life, the self-denial, the cross life, living as each other's servants, humbly, kindly, laying down our life and our, our selfish desires and all the things that could make our names great so that we can love someone else, so that we can love each other as a community. There is no greater love than that love of laying down your life. Jesus says, that's what I'm about to do for my friends. That is the epitome of love. Listen to this, though. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all the things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. This passage, I think, has often been uh, twisted by people to equate us with Jesus. To, to say, hey, we're just good buddies. Jesus is my homeboy, that kind of mentality. We're equals. We're equals. We're just friends. <clears throat> we're friends. Our American view of friendship is not what Jesus is saying. We're not just good buddies. We're not just pals. 
In fact, he explains what he means by friendship. He does not mean that we hang out and have a good time. He says you've become friends when you were slaves. What's he referring to? He's still a king. You're a friend of the king. You are not on an equal plane. In fact, you still have to obey as a friend. He says so. The delineation he makes between slaves and friends has nothing to do with obedience at all. It's not, you used to be slaves, so you had to obey, but now we're friends. You just, we're hanging out, we're chilling. No, you used to be slaves. Now you're friends. Why are they friends and no longer slaves? Because Jesus has revealed to them his plans. He says, everything the Father told me, I have now told you. So no longer do I call you slaves, but I call you friends. And the same obligation of obedience like slaves is on the friends. Because he's a king. Friends of the king don't get to ask the king what to do or tell him that he needs to do this. It's not buddy-buddy. The difference is that Jesus has let us in on his plans. So we too can be called friends, not on the basis of how close we are, but on the basis of what he's revealed to us. We know his business. So we can be called the friends of Jesus. And we are obligated, like friends of a king, to live under his rule still. Because he's still a king. We must remember that. Because the whole part, the whole point of this passage that he's been trying to say is do what I command. Friendship is still about doing what he commands. In fact, his, his, these verses about friendship come under him telling us to do what he commands us to do. But we have been called friends and we are privileged because we don't just have to merely obey like slaves. We know his business and we obey like friends. Like friends of the king. He has made known to us the plans and will of his father. And what is that will? One, for us to bear fruit. It's what he has said. One, his Father's plans are that we would bear fruit. And two, that we would do what he commands. And for us to bear fruit, for us to do what he commands, it more than anything looks like loving one another. That's what Jesus has said so far. He says, you are no longer called slaves, but friends because all the things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. What's the essence of this prayer he keeps talking about? This 
you ask whatever in my name. It's about us bearing fruit, isn't it? The essence of what he's telling us to continue to ask of the Father is that we would continue to bear fruit. And so we do pray. We pray that God would form our characters to be like Jesus. The essence of our prayers is that we're becoming like the vine. That as branches we would look like, operate like, think like, act like the vine, knowing it is his life flowing through us. That we would do what he has commanded. That we would bear fruit on his behalf. And he ends this section like this. One more time. This I command you. That you love one another. Everything Jesus has been saying is about the way we love one another. That's how we bear fruit. That's what we're called to ask in the Lord's name. Community is vital. It is essential to what Jesus is doing. He says the new covenant, all of this new covenant that you're under, all of the covenant can be summed up in this. It is this commandment that I tell to you, the new commandment, love one another. And why is it so important to love one another? Well, we won't get there this week, but next week, he's going to remind us part of the reason it's so important for us to love one another and why it's so vital for the church and the community of God to deeply lay down their lives for each other is because the world hates us. Jesus has told us how we are to operate one to one another. He's told us how we are supposed to care for each other. He has told us how we are supposed to lay down our lives for each other, in part because he's about to remind us how the world is going to treat us. And it is a far cry from how we are called to treat one another, isn't it? What Jesus is about to say. In some ways, as Americans, I think we'll turn our heads because we have not experienced it like so much of the rest of the world. But we might. There are still days ahead in which we might face the things that so much of this world have faced as Christians. That certainly these early Jewish believers did in their day. And so we're called once again to recommit ourselves to loving each other loving each other deeply and laying down our lives for each other. It's Jesus' commandment. And His commandment and the following of His commandment is how we abide in His love. So let us do that commandment tonight. Let us do that commandment for the rest of our lives, loving the church, loving each other, building each other up, reminding each other to stay attached to the vine, warning each other about the cost of leaving the vine, 
and serving each other, just as Jesus did. Let me bless you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person in this room. I'm so grateful they're here, Lord. I pray the message of this evening will sink deep into their hearts, that community is vital, that you have called us to community. It is not negotiable. You've called us to love one another. The lone Christian is unable to fulfill your great commandment, which is to love other Christians. Remind us to stay in your love, to stay in your community, to love each other, and to obey your commandments. Help us to keep each other on the right path. Help us to keep each other attached to the vine. One of the great joys of community is that we encourage each other to do that. Would each person in here encourage one another tonight? Lift each other up. Pray for one another. Lord, would we pray that we would bear much fruit and by doing so, glorify your Father. Lord, I pray that each person in here would be pruned by your tender touch so that they might bear even more fruit in their lives. And I pray, I pray also that they would leave a legacy, fruit that would remain, so that the next generations might see it and also attach themselves to the vine. You. Our great Lord, thank you for calling us friends. Thank you for putting us on your business. May you help each person in here be about your business today and all days. Bless each person in Jesus' name and by your Spirit's power. Amen. 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 Thank you, guys. Amen.